Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world, and other times like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to the Being a Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning, and today I'm joined by Dr. Raina Tan to discuss social determinants of health, which describe the non-medical factors that influence physical and mental health outcomes. Often when we think about health, we typically think about individuals, their behaviors, choices, and capacity to deal with adversity. But many factors contribute to our overall health and well-being, and Raina will be sharing his thoughts and insights into the wider conditions that shape our lives on a current basis and over time. Raina is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Project China, Institute for Global Health and Infectious Diseases, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a visiting research fellow at Saul Sui Hock School of Public Health, National University of Singapore, and a visiting research fellow at the Infectious Diseases Research and Training Office at the National Center for Infectious Diseases in Singapore. He has a background in sociology and is a social behavioral research by training. His research interests revolve broadly around the social determinants of health, the health of vulnerable and minority populations, sexual health, and mental health. Thank you for joining us on the Being Human podcast, Rainer. How are you? Thank you, Dr. Chua. I am uh, okay. Um, yes, I have uh, been good. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think I've just been busy with research and, uh, you know, right. with our research together on mental health. Yes. yes. And I've never been called by Dr. Chua by you, um, <laughs> given that you and I work. Uh, together as collaborators. But, you know, as I was reading your CV, I was, um, again, awed by how much work you do and how prolific you are. I feel like at your very young age, because, you know, can I announce that you are also the Fulbright Scholar? Uh, yes, well, I, 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 I got a Fulbright Visiting Scholarship with uh, the Singapore U.S. Embassy. So I'll be headed to the Mothership um, North Carolina in a couple of days. Yes, it's okay. I mean, so thank you for spending your precious time. You have several days in Singapore to talk to us. I mean, how are you keeping so busy before we, we get started? Is this not, not too much work and do you ever get bored of research? Uh, I do get bored of research, but to answer your question, I think I question myself about whether it's too much work. I mean, there's also... You know, there's an element of privilege there because, you know, like for me, um, you know, I get to do work. I'm not, I don't have, uh, at the moment, I'm healthy enough to do it. You know, like I don't have any um, kids to take care of apart from like four kids, you know, and uh, during this time in my uh, postdoctoral fellowship, you know, um, I think I have dedicated time to just sprint with research. And so, um, you know, I've had the privilege of saying yes to uh, everything that's been coming my way, which of course is not very healthy, but you know, like I'm going to reevaluate uh, that now that my postdoctoral fellowship is kind of um, uh, you know, almost done. 
um, it's not sustainable. I mean, just to be real. Yeah. So all the people who are listening to this podcast, the three of them <laughs> would, would then go like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do so much work. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I, I think especially when you just graduate, you, you really try to take all, you, you go all out. Yeah, unsure about what else would come to you. Um, and so you started in sociology, but then you, you know, as I was reading your CV, now you're doing things on infectious diseases and then now social determinants of health. And you know, what got you there? The story goes, like when I, I was actually a business major. And then after a couple of years of doing business, I realized that I was quite disillusioned with Oh, actually, the, the honest truth is that when I got to the finance modules, I freaked out. And then you know, I just decided that I'm really not a business major. But, you know, like, I think I, I actually dropped out of uni and then I, I came back, you know, and I, I did social sciences. And I thought to myself, you know, I want to be a psychology because I started therapy then. And, you know, like, oh. I was so inspired by, you know, the fact that there was there were actually therapists in the world right. uh, helping people like me. And... But, you know, like, when I got to psychology, I also kind of realized that there was sociology. And, you know, like, um, I, I saw both of them as focusing on the same thing, right? You know, like, issues and problems that, you know, like, are impacting our social lives, uh, except they were just coming from different perspectives. And, you know, for me, sociology spoke to that idea of structural um, disadvantage and, you know, like, structural issues that, um, you know, at least I, I felt like I've, I faced in several aspects of my life. So that, that kind of resonated with me. So you you opt out of psychology, which is the better major. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I spoke to so many people and then they were like, mm, do what do what you need to do. Yeah. Cause you don't you know, you don't think about sociology, I guess, very much. I don't know. I mean, there's I guess there's a stereotype um of sociologists not being extra relevant to this world now, you know. Um and of course, psychologists are. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think clinical psychologists are, are maybe more and more recognized for, for their relevance because of the of mental health. Um, but, you know, sociology, maybe maybe for our listeners, like what's the focus? And, and you talk about the difference in psychology and sociology. But so why is it important to take a sociological view of, um, of health? I feel like, uh, sociology, you know, like uh, tries to make sense of, you know, how maybe like a, an individual's experience, um, you know, like what they call personal troubles are also, you know, weaved into, you know, public issues. You know, so like I think that connection between an individual's issues with, you know, public dynamics has been like a focus of sociology. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, and the, the research that I do, you know, it's very easy to say that someone is unhealthy because they have, you know, failed to engage in some issues or some, you know, like health-seeking behavior. But, you know, when you're able to connect, like, personal troubles to public issues of poverty, of, you know, like, food insecurity, of issues of stigma, you know, then you can start to see that, hey, maybe it's not so much like this individual's problem, um, but, you know, it's connected to such a, you know, a broader uh, constellation of, you know, like, different um, issues at hand. So you mentioned like poverty, uh, maybe economic status, even education, you know, difference in education and how these things interact with uh, the person 
and maybe where they are to and result into the the outcome being very good health or bad health. And now, I mean, often with social determinants, you're looking at the negative things, right? You're looking at things that predict negative health. You know, and you're not looking at wealth and uh, health. You know, is that is that you know is that a, a slant or maybe emphasis on just all, all the negative stuff? Maybe as like researchers, we tend to focus on the negative things because we you know, there's a lot more currency in trying to make something that is bad good, you know. But I think uh, you know, I I feel that uh, it's actually quite neutral, you know, because the language, at least if you think of like a WHO kind of like social determinants of health framework, the language used is the distribution of health, you know, and I think that would cover both sides of um, you know, like poor health or good health. We, is it fair to say that all rich people are healthy, you know, or more healthy than, than sort of poor people? Um, okay, so <laughs> the, the long, okay, the, the short answer is no. The long answer is there are some scholars who would argue yes, because I think in the 1990s, there was a, there was an influential line of scholarship uh, that proposed like a fundamental cause theory. And I think uh, Link and Fallon from a, uh, uh, Columbia University proposed that you know the fundamental cause of health is actually socioeconomic status, you know because you know like with socioeconomic status, uh, you know high socioeconomic status you know offers you um, protections, you know it buffers any forms of stress because you have access to resources, um, you know. But I, I guess you know that that in itself has a lot of truth to it, you know like the distribution of health, you know does have some correlation with um you know wealth. Uh, in society, because you get access to medical care, you get access to insurance, you know, you get access to, um, you know, good food and good nutrition, I mean, presumably. Um, and, you know, I think back then, it was also quite groundbreaking in terms of that perspective, because in the 1990s, you know, I think we were also still thinking about how, um, you know, a lot of health issues were done, were, were caused by an individual's own, you know, like poor health behaviors, you know, so being able to link this to something larger uh albeit a little bit blunt at the time you know i think was uh something quite field changing and quite influential you know i think you mentioned an important point right that in the 90s yes you might have seen that shift but i wonder whether it's is it more of a research shift and we're not talking about the states and you know the uk which i think their policies have done a lot more to recognize the social determinants of health you know how someone's housing could affect them where they stay affects them how close they live to um, grocery stores, um, parks, and how that influences their good health. I think much of the focus in, in our countries, you know, Singapore and Malaysia, uh, largely remain on the individuals and their efforts to maintain good health, especially in mental health, right? That it's still you and maybe this person is to be maybe derogatory, like the strawberry generation, this person is weaker, this person, um, it's just not resilient enough. This person isn't thinking right. There's a lot of on this individual, and and then why is this person so lazy to get help? You know what's wrong with them? You know why can't they do it? You know, do you think that you're talking about the shift in conversation that mental health has been left behind in that shift um, all over, or maybe just our countries? I'm not sure. Okay, I want to say it's for fun, but you know, like, what what kind of research? <laughs> I, I, I research for fun. Okay, fine. You know, like, I, I think one one time I was just searching on. Wait, 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 wait! What research for fun? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, just um, 
Yeah, I wanted to say I was doing some research, but actually it wasn't oh, like... Oh, you were like, just doing research for fun. Okay. Yeah, just like research for fun. you were just like looking stuff up, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I was really curious, like, um, uh, you know, like, has Singapore been ever mentioned a term, social determinants of health? Um, and, you know, I realized that, at least, okay, this was back, caveat, this was like 2020, right? And I was like trying to write an article or commentary on this. And uh, I realized that we had never used the term social determinants of health in our policy discourse before, you know, and I thought that was quite interesting because um, it's probably a choice in some ways because, uh, you know, the, the term is so influential in like WHO circles and, you know, like at the, at the uh, SDGs, you know, the Millennium Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals level, um, you know, this term comes up, but not so much in policy discourse. And, you know, I, I almost feel like we are perhaps not there yet. Uh, it's not so much that people aren't talking about it, but, you know, maybe at a policy level, um, you know, we need to get there. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seems to me that, I mean, one of the possible reasons is, is like, is it the locus of causality? Like who's responsible for your bad health? And if you say social determinants, I, who are, it almost feels like a blame. Are you blaming, um, you know, this government or that government for not doing enough to improve your living situation is it their fault that you have bad health i mean the short answer is uh uh i, I see the hesitation in my my singapore <laughs> <friend. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay um well i would say that is a failing of the system yes you know and i think that there are some historical reasons that i can identify that you know has led Singapore's government to focus on, you know, maybe more the individual than on the system. And, you know, like Singapore always has this rhetoric of, uh, you know, self, um, self-reliance. Because I've done some like health systems research and, you know, like since the, the since independence, you know, like it, it's always been like, okay, you know, like we, you must always have this uh, self-reliance more, you know, we don't have a safety net, we have a trampoline, you know, that's something I think, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Taman said at one conference, right? It's like, you know, we don't have safety net to catch people. You know, we have a trampoline. So, you know, you must jump, then you can jump propel. <laughs> yeah, you know. Have you not seen the many videos that people <laughs> jump on the trampoline, fall off the trampoline, and then hurt themselves uh, <laughs> dramatically? That, that's the that's the social determinants of health. <laughs> you jump high enough, you get good health. You jump, you jump low, which still ends up being um, the person, right? The person yeah. needing the, the the strength, the capacity um, to to even jump on the trampoline. You know, uh, like you know, we have a number of mutual acquaintances, and I remember one of them talking about trying to help someone um, access services, but uh, you know, because they were in in extreme poverty, and social services said, "Well, you have to come down to our office." you know, mm. to form. And this person said, well, I have no money. I was like, well, you know, so it's called, so it's catch me. It's like this loop, right? Like I have no money. So, and I can't, you know, or I can't even act. I don't even understand what this form is saying. I don't even know how to get there to this, this office to access services. Mm. And then at the end of the day, so do you think that these are barriers to, you know, if I just take a really negative view, is it possible we're putting up barriers because we don't want to help them? Mm. Like it would save money if we help fewer people. No, you know, I think a lot of like health 
health systems decisions, uh, you know, like it's very clear who benefits and you know who is at a disadvantage. So you know, like I think at a very honest and objective level, yes, it is a choice that you know some people, based on your policy, have fallen through the cracks. You know, and I I guess the the question to ask then is, you know, like if you have if you knowingly allow them to fall through the cracks, you know, what kind of trampoline <laughs> or like safety net do you have? You know, like because yeah. it it's like a tiered system, right? But you know, this is terrible because like if if someone can't access a health service because of certain barriers like that, you know, and it has already been there's a feedback loop loop to it, you know, then it's it's a choice, uh, right? You know, like obviously, right? Um, yeah, you know, things services are not developed with those people in mind. Right. They're developed, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, when we're thinking about developing services, um, we're not thinking about the ones who perhaps need the services the most and have the largest barriers, you know, uh, to accessing it, either in literacy and access and even in the disabilities that they may have. And so that then perpetuates the effects of so the, the social determinants of health. You know, that it's, it's not just that, people who are of the lowest economic status have poor health because they can't access good nutrition. It's also that they can't access health services, you know, because mm-hmm. they have, these health services are not catered to them. And because they can't uh, access these health services, um, they're more likely to have ill health. And then the children, right. It's a generational thing too. You know, their children kind of seeing that happen. Um, one of my colleagues in the Cheng fellowship is, is looking at uh, the social determinants in the black community. And how entrenched this view is of just we have bad health. The health system isn't for us. You know, it's normal that our lifespan should be shorter. Mm. And so from a system point of view, perpetuates, you know, kind of sends these messages too, you know, to the community, to the person, uh, the family unit. And and it seems very daunting, you know, like so how do you change any of this? Because you're a sociologist, and I was wondering, you know, you kind of alluded to that you had some, you know, your personal experiences and, and realizing the impact. And, and so I was wondering where you could share a little bit of experience, because I'm trying to figure out, it seems so large and overwhelming to think, oh my gosh, then where do we start? Because there's so many things influencing mm-hmm. this issue. I mean, the, the, those frameworks that talk about social determinants of health, cover like you know how dynamic this whole area is you know like where there's health distribution of health you know it depends on health services characteristics and health services characteristics and access is in turn you know a result of you know one social position material you know material resources in turn it is like uh impacted by your social demographic attributes and you know like that all exists within a framework of social policy you know culture norms so you know, it's like this this thing that goes on and on, right? In terms of a, a dynamic flow, um, beyond that complexity, there's also the, the health systems complexity. You know, and uh, okay, well, well, I this doesn't touch on my own experiences yet, but you know, like I think uh, one thing that I've read around um, this complexity is that you know, if you really want to create change from a social determinants of health perspective, you know, all these researchers and sociologists have said that, you know, the social determinants of health perspective is actually quite a bottom up and quite a, you know, like, um, uh, uh, you know, like subversive model, because, you know, a lot of the ways that our economies 
our global institutions are structured uh, privileges, you know, like those who already have capital and wealth. You know, so actually in order to fulfill the social determinants of health, you must be ready to, you know, like get rid of like structures that, you know, potentially entrench wealth and uh, capital. So, you know, in some way it's actually very, you know, it's very systems changing. And the question that we want to ask is, you know, can we as a capitalist society actually exist with work that promotes the social determinants of health? I guess you're saying yes, is it? <laughs> well, I guess I guess the answer um, is that there needs to be an evolution towards that. You know, I'm not saying that we should destroy like all our skyscrapers like overnight. You know, we're gonna get like health equity. You know, but um, there are ways that okay. So my my perspective uh, that I am arguing for is um, that you know if we start to privilege bottom up approaches to health and to research and to delivery of health services, you know, it becomes a lot more evident that, you know, like a lot of our current systems that are top-down developed and driven uh, might not work. Because if you get people who are affected by certain policies involved in their own care, you know, basically what they can do as people with lived experiences, they can diagnose upstream. You know, we can tell you based on our lived experience, you know, like uh, everything that that should matter, you know, for us if we are thinking of addressing this health issue, you know, all the way. I mean, okay, so this is where I can bring in my own experience. So, like for example, if you think about, say, um, you know, sexually transmitted infections or HIV in the gay community, you know, where my research is on, you know, like you might think about, you know, condom access, you know, like HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, which prevents HIV infection, you know, access to these kinds of innovations, but you know, you seldom think about things like growing up, you know, did I experience uh, stigma, you know, as a gay man, you know, did I experience some kind of family disowning me, you know, these kind of things. And, you know, these kind of things, while they're not like the, the, the direct causes, you know, like these things all tie into, you know, my mistrust of medical institutions, my mistrust of certain kinds of like uh, healthcare um, uh, channels. So, you know, like if you really want to get at, the interventions that are multi-level, you know, getting people involved and affected by these uh, dynamics, I think helps you diagnose upstream and prescribe downstream. How would you explain it to like a five-year-old? Like I understood the mm. little bit when you're starting to talk about your personal experience, but it's quite theoretical still, you know, and, and, and we are trying to target people who are, as you said, maybe not the wealthiest, not the most educated. I don't even think that they would understand what mm. we are trying to tell them, right? We are trying to say, well, this matters. And but the the language um in this field seems quite jargony. You know, like how would mm. you explain that? Well, I mean I, I start like at a community level, you know, it's always like communities know best. You know, and I would sum it up in that phrase, right? Because um if a health service is supposed to benefit me, you know, why aren't I part of that development of the health service? You know, and I think that kind of sums things up. I mean, from a lived experience perspective, you know, like, basically it's, it's assumed that, you know, you know what's best for yourself. Who is assuming that, that you know what's best for yourself? The medical system? Or like you're saying, like, I, I'm assuming I know what's best for myself. Hmm. This is where complexity comes in, but I don't want to complicate things. I want to try and keep you can things... You can complicate them in simple language. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It's a partnership, right? 
because um, you know, when we talk about health systems, it's not like like a hospital, you know, like, a, like a hospital or like the Ministry of Health or like the clinics, is it? Yeah, you know, like for example, if I'm running a hospital for a community, and you know, like basically, you know, it's not about saying, okay, I'm gonna vacate this. Doctors get out. You know, like community come in. You know, they know what's best. You know, you run on your own. Uh, it's really not about that. It's about getting professionals who are trained, let's say, in medicine. You know, like if you are planning a service, you know, we've always had this tendency to say that I think I know what's best for this group of people, you know, because that is that is what I've been trained to do. But now I think one thing that we argue for, you know, to address social determinants is that if you get people from the community involved in this kind of planning, they will be able to tell you so much more than what you already know that is affecting them. So, you know, like you mentioned things like, you know, having the right form or, you know, like the, the, the right way of accessing things. You know, sometimes these are some things that people don't even think of. Like, like for example, someone once told me that someone had to access some services, like some kind of welfare services, but the only way that they could submit a form was electronically or, you know, like a, I think they had to print out a form or something. Uh, but then, uh, you know, for low-income households, you know, if they don't have a printer at home, where, you know, they have to run around the entire, you know, block of Singapore, you know, to find a printer who can print something, you know, for them. And, you know, it's just these small things, supposedly small things, you know, that are actually your barriers to access right. that you don't think small about. Small things in, in normal, for let's say the average person, but really large barriers for people without access yeah. to health services or to good health. But it seems so idealistic, right? To they said, let's involve communities and communities know what's best. And and when we involve peers or people with lived experience or people who have experience with that health issue, are we giving them equal power to medical doctors? You know, do do we say that we treat them the same as decision makers, or are we saying we listen to them, but we still make the decision? That's an interesting question. This is what I believe, right? You know, so like there is a spectrum of how much power you want to share, right, with uh, different communities. And you know, I think depending on what your you know your outcome is, like for example, um, you know, if I wanted to roll out a service to get more people tested for HIV, right? And, uh, you know, I wanted to roll this out to improve HIV testing for this particular community. You know, then I would, there are, there are things that I would think of, you know, like for example, uh, do I really need medical expertise, you know, to actually get to that kind of, um, you know, outcome? And, you know, in that sense, there are also communities like, uh, you know, in Thailand, there are certifying lay providers, you know, people who aren't doctors, people who aren't nurses, you know, but just community members who can be certified to fun perform a health function. You know, so in this sense, you know, like you're giving, you're, you're creating new roles where you actually give people medical power, you know, when they weren't trained in a particular, you know, medical profession. You know, so I think in that sense, it kind of makes sense. But if you're asking people to like, you know, run a clinic, and to diagnose issues, uh, then maybe not so much, right? You know, I think that's that's the difference I would make. Because it is, it is tricky, right? It's not just advocating all decision 
power be given to someone who knows a lot about their community, but when you're trying to do maybe something on a national level, um, you know, that person then has to be like the rest of us, you know, with or without lived experience, be be more exposed to or be more educated about everything that you're trying to make a decision on. And, and this is something that even relates struggles with. And I've sort of talked to you about this without peer support services. You know, and I really want to sort of create a, a service where our peers have to get a seat at the table with our clinicians and re- discuss what's the best way to shape our services. But I'm also mindful that at the top of it is me, right? Mm-hmm. And at the top of it is you and both of, you know, both of us are people with lived experiences who decided to play the game, decided that if we want power, we need certain amount of education. We need to speak a certain amount of a certain language. We need to function within, as you said, you know, sort of the, the top-down society, right? Mm-hmm. In order for us to influence um, or to create some change. I, I don't, because of my own experiences, I don't even understand or I'll have the full understanding of what it really feels like to be so powerless. You know, just waiting for someone to ask me what I think. But it doesn't cross my mind to advocate for my own health. And I think those Mm -hmm. are the people that we want to start empowering, even if it's not making decisions for the community. I think it almost feels like to me starting to to become, you know, sort of health advocates and to band together. I always like to think if we make enough noise, right, we have to pay attention to you. And that's the same, I think, for our peers, you know, it's, I want my, our peers to make enough noise and for us to be supporting their noise, but also informing them, you know, so that we're mutually informing each other and growing together, right? Because we don't have the experience they have, they don't have the experiences we have. And so, I don't know, maybe it, I think it is idealistic if I, if I have this view of like 50-50, <laughs> but that my decision is not more or less informed by one over the other, because at the lower level, they are mutually informed. You know, the peers mm. are, are clinicians or influenced by clinicians, and there's a knowledge sharing. So at the end of the day, what comes up to me to make a decision is something that accounts for both lived experience and clinical knowledge or research knowledge. But I would love to see, and I think that's one thing that, for me, social determinants or, or sort of barriers to health or education or, or uh, certain outcomes in life is that we need more people with lived experiences who are educated, who can speak that language to be the bridge between both communities, you know, and, and to do some interpreting and sort of, sort of stand in the gap a little bit. And even more people standing in the gap, I think, you know, maybe that's going to be a, a smoother transition to, as you say, the, the idealistic state of bottom-up and, and, and top-down merging. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Because um, we try and play the game. You know, we try and equip ourselves with the language of policymakers and all that. And, you know, I think with that privilege, uh, sharing it and also, you know, educating more people about it, I guess is one way of also, you know, creating, you know, not such a stark cut-off between those who make decisions and those who are supposed to be, you know, benefiting from them, right? So, you know, I think I often see researchers and, you know, like uh, like people working in this space as that in-between 
uh, line. Yeah. Okay, we've got one last thing, which I'm going we've already started talking about the future. So as you looked to the future, scale one to ten, because researchers like scales. Ten, very optimistic. <laughs> very post, uh, pessimistic. How optimistic are you regarding the potential progress to enhance our collective health and well-being? Psychologists like scales. <laughs> <laughs> yes, psychologists just want qualitative experiences. <laughs> well, okay, let me answer that. I would say that I would say I would give an eight. You know, because I am fueled by optimism and you know, otherwise i don't think i'll be doing what i'm doing but at the same time i don't want to give a 10 because like obviously there's huge barriers like i like you know like i mentioned previously at a systems level because it's like you mentioned like you, like you said you know it's like really daunting you know it's so complex you know like i'm just but one person trying to make a difference with like a, one client or one beneficiary right you know and that uncertainty that minus two points is really about how complex things are but you know, I don't want to give seven. A great job. Only minus two points. <laughs> <laughs> must be above five. Must be above five okay. because okay, below good. five, I don't want to do anything okay. anymore. Right, right, yeah. Below five, below five is just a, a, a losing strategy. So somewhere above five, somewhere like six to eight, but like eight, <laughs> yeah. You're optimistic guy, and I think you're right. You know, it's that on quieter days, um, I mean, not so quiet days. I, I think I'm, I'm honest that, yeah. I don't know how much is going to change, but I think I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about whether things will change or not change. Um, I just know that I have a little step to put down. And if other people keep walking on that step to build something, that's good. You know, mm. but you know, it's, you're right. It's too, I think we have to fuel ourselves with optimism. Otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't do anything, you know? It is, it's true. I mean, I mean, for for work that exists outside of the current system, I think there is so much friction and attrition, and you know, like you know that that self care is almost a form of self care to, you know, remain optimistic and you know, like to surround yourself with people who are also optimistic for change. And you know, otherwise, it's a very lonely journey, and it's also like you know, really um, tiring as well. So you're, you're, you're 8 out of 10, you're very optimistic about the potential progress as very collectively and, and making changes in your system. But importantly is that that optimism needs to be supported with the collective community, you know, surrounding mm. yourself with people who can, who don't just like, you know, rah-rah, you know, from the outside, but really sort of understand what you're doing and can sort of be by your side to sort of push forward that, that goal and mission, I think that to me feels, feels at least uh, our mission at, at Relate. Yeah, and I, I'm sure one thing that, you know, Relate can also relate with uh, is that, you know, I think part of the, <laughs> part of the uh, community will also be the individuals who, you know, we want them to change things. You know, like yes. I'm sure small successes along the way with that goal in mind have been things that sustained you know, yeah. like the journey. Yeah. 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 Ever changing. I mean, I think like if we we find something that doesn't work, we should just, for me anyway, because we're small enough, like throw it out. Let's try something different and try something different. And, and being humble that way is, is important for, for us. So thank yeah. you, Rainer, for joining us. 
Thank you. Thanks for a wonderful interview experience. Have a lot of nice laughs and, you know, like lame jokes on my part. Um, but yes, I think. Uh, thank I hope I didn't stress you out too much with those questions. <laughs> no, not at all. It was, it was good. Okay. And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis. So be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms, one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Sakning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.